So I think while we can really talk about in terms of political strategy and analysis, having geographical and historical specificity, not only does our analysis fail, but our political movements fail as well if we don't think about these deeper historical connections that are shared um, among the anti-racist struggles in different parts of the world. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, postdoctoral associate in migrations, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. In this episode, we focus on migration and global racial justice. Questions of inequality, discrimination, solidarity, and rights inform each episode in this series. Here, we explicitly take up the significance of understandings of and movements for racial justice in contexts of migration. I speak with Camila Hawthorne, a critical human geographer and interdisciplinary social scientist, about racial justice movements in Italy. Then, Camila and I are joined by activist, poet, and scholar Shailja Patel, author of the book Migritude, to discuss the relationship between migration, borders, racism, and movements for justice. As we get started, I want to acknowledge that I come to this conversation as a white U.S. citizen and also as someone who studies race and migration in the Italian context. And I'm so thrilled to bring Camila and Shilja into conversation for their perspectives on anti-racist and migrant rights movements in multiple regions. We talk about how the racialization of migrants has produced and perpetuated grave injustices and how migrant and racial justice are critically linked. One perhaps especially resonant example of these connections arose last summer as Black Lives Matter demonstrations took place across the U.S. and in countries around the world, marking solidarity across borders and, at the same time, also taking shape in response to specific histories and struggles. As we'll hear, in places like Italy, Black Lives Matter has come to speak to long-standing issues of citizenship and the rights of Africans crossing the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. In this episode, we reflect on these reckonings for racial justice across borders, and more broadly, the global dimensions of anti-racist struggle. To begin, I'm joined by Camila Hawthorne. Uh, my name is Camila Hawthorne. I am an assistant professor in sociology and critical race and ethnic studies at UC Santa Cruz. One of the reasons that I was uh, really excited to get to talk to you for this episode about global racial justice is because of some of the intersections and, and interests in our work in the Italian context. And I know that you're working right now on a book about Black Italy, um, and you're also doing some um, maybe collaborative work um, more broadly in Black geographies. Could you just speak a little bit about your current projects? I'm especially interested in hearing about the book, but also anything else you feel is especially relevant right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the book that I'm working on right now, and I'm actually, you know, just in the the last stages of, you know, proofing and final revisions before I, I send it off to Cornell University Press, where it will hopefully then go into production. But that book um, looks at emergent forms of Black Italian political mobilization in Italy. So, you know, I sort of came to these questions myself, you know, my mother is Italian, uh, from Bergamo, my father is African-American. I've been interested in a kind of a deeper contextualization of the Black diaspora in Italy, really since I was an undergrad in college. Um, and then when I started my PhD, I started meeting a lot of um, Afro-Italians or Black Italians who were you know, around my same age, 
who for the first time that I had really noticed, um, and people remarked on this as well, were beginning to kind of collectively refer to themselves as Black Italian or Afro-Italian. And so I became really interested in kind of understanding, you know, what was it about this moment that was enabling the emergence of this new kind of political subjectivity of being Black Italian and what kind of politics it was enabling. And, you know, one of the the key areas where that was playing out was around the reform of Italian citizenship law, which is based on uh, use sanguinis or right of blood descent rather than use solis or um, right of birthplace descent. And that law has left, it's estimated between 600,000 and 900,000 youth of color disenfranchised. So these would be the children of immigrants to Italy who were born and raised in Italy. And so for many Black Italians, a reform of citizenship law was you know not just about the kind of bureaucratic apparatus of citizenship, but it was also about kind of challenging the racial state and challenging the kind of unspoken whiteness that goes to the heart of normative understandings of who gets to be Italian. Uh, but as I continue doing this research, and I noticed that increasingly, you know, discussions about Black Italianness were not just limited to citizenship anymore, um, but were sort of spilling out into all of these really interesting places. Um, you know, like entrepreneurship, like cultural production, but also the the kind of object of Black Italian politics was not solely oriented toward the Italian nation state and the kind of goal of, you know, recognition and inclusion, but it also was becoming a way to articulate broader diasporic solidarities, whether it's trans-Mediterranean, thinking about the connections between Black Italians who were born and raised in Italy um, and, you know, African migrants and refugees, or linking up their mobilizations to, you know, what's happening in France and the UK and the United States. And, And that, you know, we really saw very dramatically in the summer of 2020, when, you know, thousands and thousands of people descended into the streets in Italy for Black Lives Matter protests that were not just about expressing solidarity with African-Americans, but we're actually about sort of naming uh, the George Floyds of Italy as well. Thanks. And that has me thinking also about this piece of yours in search of Black Italia, in which you talk about the connections, I guess the resonances between Black Lives Matter in the U.S. context, and maybe more so how Black Italians have navigated their own spaces of protest um, and their own experiences of violence and discrimination and how that, how that resonates with Black Lives Matter in the U.S. and also maybe how it doesn't. And I think that piece is from a few years ago. So I wonder if you've noticed something changing even just in the last couple of years in terms of how that conversation is happening. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I appreciate you bringing up that piece because I think, you know, in the summer of 2020, I saw a lot of kind of news coverage that was like, you know, in Europe, they're marching for Black Lives Matter too. And there was this kind of like linear narrative of, you know, like Black Lives Matter happened in the US and now it's spreading to Europe and these Black Europeans are suddenly becoming conscious of their Blackness. And, you know, there's a lot of things that's problematic about that story, right? One, it kind of obscures decades and decades of history of Black organizing in Europe, but it also forgets that, you know, 2016 was also a year of global uh, Black Lives Matter protests as well. You know, I think that a lot of the same questions and tensions um, 
exist as, you know, the ones that I documented in that piece. And I think there's always that question of that tenuous relationship between, um, you know, between different parts of the diaspora. You know, a lot of times you kind of assume diaspora to be this sort of unitary community. But actually, you know, as a lot of scholars of the Black diaspora point out, there's also tensions and power differentials across the diaspora. And so, you know, in that piece, I document the fact that on the one hand, you have kind of white Italians who are like, oh, no, 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 Italy is nothing like the United States. We didn't have slavery. We didn't have Jim Crow. But Black Italians in a different way are also saying, you know, look, uh, our experiences are different from Black Americans. That doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist in Italy, but it means that while we can gain some inspiration and, you know, share tactics and strategies and cultural resources, we have to kind of build up our own language, you know, for contending with the particular forms that anti-Black racism takes in Italy that are like very much tied to experiences of migration and experiences of colonialism more explicitly than they are in the United States. Um, and so I think, you know, the the maybe the biggest shift is just that the kind of Black Italian movement has just grown, has grown significantly. Um, but, you know, a lot of the same questions still remain. Um, you know, for instance, uh, I think police violence and the prison industrial complex is really kind of the centerpiece of Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. Um, that's not the extent of the protest, but I think that becomes a kind of entry point right into structural racism in the U.S. And in Italy, even though, you know, a lot of scholars have documented the ways that Black migrants are overrepresented in Italian prisons, um, police violence is not at the center of Black Lives Matter mobilizations in Italy, right? It's really focused on, um, you know, disenfranchisement through restrictive citizenship laws, um, the exploitation of Black labor in, you know, the agricultural fields of the South, the, the violence of the borders of Fortress Europe. You know, what I'm curious to see is, you know, we saw the language of abolition kind of becoming more mainstream in the United States. And so I'm, you know, but I haven't seen the language of abolition be picked up in quite the same way in Italy yet. And so for me, it's really curious to see if, you know, abolition as a kind of diasporic resource, political practice or orientation will also um, kind of have its own translation in the Italian context. That's really interesting. One of the places that um, I've seen at least the beginnings of a conversation around that has been like with Abolish ICE here around Abolish Frontex, which I don't think has mm -hmm. um, maybe as, as much of a pronounced platform, but it, your comment makes me wonder if some of the conversation about abolition, I guess how it might enter a national space and if thinking about um, some of the problems with Frontex, the European border agency, if that might be one yeah. way in which abolition can, can become a, a more I don't know, a more complex conversation within Italian spaces too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that there's a lot of possibility there. I mean, we've even seen the way that, you know, conversations about abolition in the United States have kind of grown and expanded to kind of consider um, immigrant detention and borders as part of a broader abolitionist project because of the ways that, you know, the prison industrial complex bleeds into the system of immigrant detention. And, you know, I often think a lot about you know, the way that Angela Davis, um, you know, points our attention even to the fact that a lot of the same kind of private contractors that, um, you know, build prisons and detention centers and border surveillance technologies in the U.S. are doing the same kinds of work 
in Europe and are doing the same kinds of work in Palestine, Israel. And so, you know, there are these real connections as well that can, I think, serve as the, the kind of basis for even kind of transnational solidarities around this abolitionist project and the different forms that, um, you know, that, that detention and incarceration take in different contexts. There's also, I think, a way in which border policies are often treated as if they're completely separate from some of the other kinds of policies that ex that affect people within the country. And so there's a real push, um, both in terms of policy and in terms of cultural imaginary, to think about what's happening at the external borders as somehow completely separate from the experiences of people of color within these spaces. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how some of the movements for migrant rights, thinking about people who are arriving now, um, are being connected with the movement um, around citizenship. Yeah, I think that's so. I think that's so important, and I think that there's a lot of work in kind of critical migration and border studies that you know think about borders as both material and discursive, right? That aren't just limited to the kind of geopolitical edges of the nation state, but that you know, whether it's, you know, whether we're talking about the telescoping of borders kind of within and beyond, right, the, the borders of Europe, um, or the way that kind of discursive and everyday borders get reproduced through forms of surveillance or disenfranchisement or restrictive citizenship law. You know, I think what was, what was kind of a challenge and something that was interesting for me earlier in the research was the way that the citizenship reform movement wasn't always kind of connected to these kind of broader struggles around borders. And part of it was, you know, the kind of um, the, the complicated negotiations that activists have to make when they're uh, working sort of with and against the racial state, right? Because the Italian racial state positions Black Italians as always outsiders, no matter, you know, how long they lived in Italy, regardless of whether they were born there. And so it placed these citizens to perform activists in the equivocal position of having to kind of assert no, we're not migrants, right? We are just as Italian as the next person. And then that also as a kind of unintended consequence sort of separates these struggles that actually do have a lot of things in common. Um, but what I've noticed increasingly is that um, these are connections that, um, you know, refugees and, you know, second generations are, are increasingly making for a lot of reasons. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about and, you know, toward the end of my book is, the work of second generation Eritrean Italians in Milan engaging, kind of self-organizing to do mutual aid work with newly arrived um, Eritrean refugees where they're actively trying to disrupt this binary of citizen versus migrant and thinking more about the ties of diaspora um, and ties that also are very much, um, you know, that were set into motion by Italian colonialism. I wonder if we could then maybe back up a little bit to think, you've mentioned um, a few different ways that um, race gets constructed in Italy. Um, so through colonial history being one, one of the significant ways, but um, I mean, also thinking about Italy as a space that has long been defined by different kinds of migrations um, in, out, through, and how different, different groups um, have been racialized because of that. Um, and I wondered if you could say something about that specific context as a way also of introducing this concept of the Black Mediterranean. Yeah, you know, I think that's what makes Italy such a generative place to think about, you know, race and citizenship and borders, because Italy is not really a place where whiteness 
I mean, whiteness is a whiteness is a power laden social construction, and we know that. But in Italy, whiteness has always been so precarious and so tenuous that I think it kind of puts it throws into sharp relief, right? The way that board like the the shifting shifting borders of citizenship are caught up with the shifting borders of race. And so, you know, on the one hand, I know that there's been a lot of interest, especially like in the last ten years. You know, as there's been more attention to the violence of the Mediterranean border and kind of going back to these deeper histories of migration across the Mediterranean as a way of saying, you know, look, Italy, you know, Italy actually has always been a site, a, a, a crossroads, a site of exchange of civilizational encounter. Um, my concern with some of that work, even though I, I appreciate the kind of political impulse that is behind it, is that I think it also, um, sometimes overly romanticizes the Mediterranean as a hybrid space when, you know, if we actually look at Italian history, um, there, you know, liberal Italy and even fascist Italy use the kind of the hybridity of the Mediterranean as a way of kind of uh, drawing racial boundaries as a way of legitimating colonial expansion. So like that in and of itself, like doesn't get us all the way there. Um, you know, I've even, you know, I wrote a piece with um, my my comrade Pina Piccolo a few years ago about, you know, the way that uh, white leftists often use this notion of Mediterranean meticciato or, or hybridity as a way to kind of make arguments about the irrelevance of race in the Italian context. So I think that we have to, the, the, I, the Mediterranean is very politically polyvalent. And we I think we always have to be really careful about the work that this metaphor of the Mediterranean as a, a hybrid space or a third space or a space of uh, a, a, a cultural contact zone is doing. I think this is where I think the, the concept of the Black Mediterranean becomes really helpful because on the one hand, it is kind of making a claim about, you know, the sort of deep historical presence of uh, people who are now racialized as Black, right, in the Italian peninsula and kind of throughout the civilizational history of this region. But it does so in a way that also look takes seriously the Mediterranean not only as a site of civilizational encounter and cultural mixing, but also in many ways as um, the kind of uh, uh, one of many places where we can tell the the origin story of racial capitalism as well. Um, and so, in many ways, the Black Mediterranean is not just about you know, saying like black people have always been here, although it does do that. But it's also about saying, you know, if we want to talk about the the global history of race and race making and its impact, for example, on black struggles in Italy, that we can't just talk about the black Atlantic. We actually have to think about the Mediterranean kind of as a precondition for the black Atlantic and also the Mediterranean as this ongoing site, right, of kind of the reproduction of black subjectivities and different forms of racial violence. To continue this conversation on global racial justice and migrations, Camila and I are joined by poet and activist Shelja Patel. Hi, I'm Shelja Patel. I'm a Kenyan writer and activist. I'm the author of Migritude, and I'm currently a research associate at the Five College Women's Studies Research Center in Western Massachusetts. I've asked Shilja to open our conversation by reading her poem, What We Talk About When We Talk About Movement, 
which was published in a recent issue of the Minnesota Review that focused on migratude, edited by Ashna Ali, Christopher Ian Foster, and Supriya Nair. We'll link to that issue on our website. You'll hear the first part of the poem now, and you can listen to the poem in full at the end of this episode. What we talk about when we talk about movement. How do you, the migrant, see us, the other? Asked the man last night after my talk in Venice. Guess the race of us. Guess the citizenship. I've said so often that I'm hoarse with it. Kenya is cities, towns, as well as wilderness. See us. Kenya is people, humanity, not just wildlife. See us. What we talk about when we talk about freedom is the right to be seen, to be visible and to be normative, visible while safe, visible while unquestioned. How do I, who you construct as migrant, see you who believe you belong here, you who think yourself stable in Venice, city of wedding cake palazzi balanced on fast rising waters? I said, What I see is that white migrants to Kenya call themselves expatriates. Before, they called themselves settlers. I said, what I see is the painful smallness of your window on the world, barely a slit in the wall, the scantest sliver of light. Enlarge your window, I said. Swing a sledgehammer through the brick. Make a jagged hole at least 200 years wider. Thank you. And again, for listeners, you can hear the poem in full at the end of this episode. Shelja, thanks so much for this reading and for this poem, which opens up so many threads for conversations about racism and racial justice in the way that the poem itself is crossing borders and also as it's addressing different kinds of violence and the urgency of this need for settlers and those who operate in privilege to, as you write, swing a sledgehammer through the brick and enlarge our perspective to account for colonial history. And one of the things that especially strikes me is your reference to colonizers and today's expats as white migrants, which is a descriptor we don't often hear because of the ways the word migrant is racialized. So perhaps we could start here with the question of racialized border crossing. White migrants are often given elites, preferential elite status. They are described as expatriates. And they, even though they are economic migrants, um, we know that, for example, there's European professionals are migrating in large quantities to the global south in pursuit of professional opportunities, in pursuit of better lives, that wonderful phrase, that that mythologized phrase that's used a lot in the US. But white people who migrate in search of better lives are seen as conferring some kind of benefit on their destination in the global south. Whereas brown and black and yellow people from Asian and African countries and global South regions who migrate north, even if they are bringing professional status, even if they are providing essential labor, they are seen as somehow needy, as somehow less than, and as somehow a problem. 
Camila, did you want to respond to the poem or to this question? Well, first of all, thank you, Sheldra, for that amazing, amazing poem. And I think, you know, I when I teach my class on migrant Europe, I always like to start with, with poetry, and I'm going to have to add that to the first week of my syllabus. And it also reminds me of, you know, some of the debates that happened in 2015 and 2016 um, during the, the, you know, one, one of the one of the many Mediterranean refugee crises, uh, which was around the use of um, migrant versus refugee. And so, what was interesting was that there was a kind of a first wave of critique um, that came from you know, some some journalists and NGOs in response to the kind of xenophobic backlash by politicians, as well as uh, the kind of implicit xenophobia of many news outlets that said, now we have to be accurate. These people are not migrants, they are refugees and they are, their movement is protected by the United Nations. And then after that, there was a second wave of critique that said, wait, we actually need to trouble this binary that we're drawing between migrants and refugees, which assumes that one category, one category that has been able to uh, reach a certain precarious level of international recognition is somehow more deserving uh, than another, right? That there's a there's a kind of problematic assumption of, of a very liberal notion of agency, right? Migrants are making agentic choices to travel uh, and therefore can totally be subject to the violences of borders, but refugees are being compelled to move. Um, and I believe it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Teju Cole, uh, who wrote a piece that, you know, that, you know, basically said that, you know, the, the, the violence of grinding poverty is just as urgent as, you know, the, the gun to your head. And so I think, you know, really problematizing um, the categories and the assumptions behind them about race and worth is really critical in this moment. Yeah, we hear the ways that those narratives end up racializing both by criminalizing and by rendering vulnerable. I'd like to shift and think with you both about the phrase global racial justice. We're in a moment when conversations about racial justice have become global in many ways. And so I wanted to hear from you both how this term resonates with you and what it means to then understand racial justice really in global terms and the extent to which questions of racial justice perhaps need to be also contextually specific? You know, I think the answer, you know, and I hope this isn't too much of a, of a cop-out, uh, but I think the answer is really both. Um, and, you know, this is coming from my experiences, again, you know, working with Black activists in Italy who are working really hard to craft a language and a set of political practices that can contend with the particular um, particular entanglements of border violence, post-coloniality, and anti-Black racism in the Italian context that produce a very kind of distinct set of struggles, right? Um, you know, particularly, uh, this is largely what I study around citizenship. But at the same time, I think you know, we have to be careful not to kind of fall into a sort of methodological nationalism with how we talk about these mobilizations. Um, because, you know, that plays, again, from my experience in Italy, that plays very easily into the hands of, you know, white Italians who would like the status quo to say, stay as it is. Uh, because there's a tendency to bound racism as something that happens everywhere else, something that happens elsewhere, right? Racism is always in the elsewhere, it's always in the United States. And so I think, you know, 
what, what I like to think about is like, rather than thinking about bounded national groups uh, or about a kind of superficial politics of comparison to think relationally. And what that means is sort of understanding that there is also a kind of global set of ideologies and practices uh, of you know, racism, racial capitalism, anti-black racism that really was set in motion by the you know, kind of twinned moment of you know, the, the birth of capitalism and colonial expansion and slavery, right? That really brought together the whole world into you know, a system of racial domination um, where really no one was immune. So you know, I think about you know, finding an image of uh, Sarah Bartman in the Cesare Lombroso archives, uh, you know, so even though to my knowledge, Sarah, Sarah Bartman was not brought to Italy, right? The fact that there is this spectral presence in the archives shows that Italy was part of a kind of transnational circulation of theories and ideas and practices of anti-Black racism. So I think while we can really talk about in terms of political strategy and analysis, being kind of ge having geographical and historical specificity, um, not only does our analysis fail, but our political movements fail as well if we don't think about these deeper historical connections that are shared um, among the anti-racist struggles in different parts of the world. Thank you, Camila. I really appreciate that framing. And what comes to mind for me when I hear the term and think about the term global racial justice is June. I start with June Jordan's for definition of justice, which is justice is indivisible or it is not justice. And so for me, it really requires that we think internationally, that we think intersectionally that we think as feminists and as radicals, and that we bring a decolonial lens to our interrogations of justice, because otherwise it becomes much too easy to work with parochial definitions of justice, because it's all, you know, it, it is much more demanding and compli complex to realize that to interrogate, first of all, your own placing in the hierarchies of race and justice and global racial capital, and to deal with the contradictions that you can be an oppressed minority in the global north, for example, if you are a Black person in Europe or the US, but you still have imperial privilege and the privilege to enact imperialism on the global south. You can join the US military and have powered the power of life and death over millions of people around the world. Um, you can be a member of an elite hegemonic ethnicity in an African country that gives you access to global privilege and global mobility, but still experience the violence and the oppression of anti-Black racism when you exercise that privilege and travel to the global north. So. It's really important to me that when we talk about racial justice, we always complicate it, as Camilla says. We include sub-imperialisms in Africa and Asia. We include histories of caste apartheid and the erasures of indigenous peoples on every continent and, and the ongoing violence towards indigenous peoples on every continent by 
elite ethnicities who have also fought anti-colonial liberation struggles and won liberation against European powers. And all of that is really hard work. And to me, perhaps one of the, the litmus tests is that if you're not troubled and if you're not uncomfortable and constantly interrogating your own placing in these hierarchies and your own mobilities and powers and who you have power over and then you are not really engaging with racial justice in a, a in a rigorous way let's move to the very relevant question of abolition what's the place for each of you of abolition in different forms in your thinking and work for racial justice Camila, we brought this up a little bit in our conversation a moment ago, but I wondered if you wanted to say more about the connectedness of different abolition movements. Yeah, I really, um, Shelja, I really appreciate um, your your insights about, you know, thinking about the many kinds of nested and, and nuanced um, kind of global imperial racial hierarchies. Um, this is definitely something that I, you know, that I encounter in my work. Um, and even, you know, through the, the Black Europe Summer School that I help to coordinate where, you know, we often have um, African, young African-American students who are coming to Europe for the first time um, and sort of beginning to understand that there are complicated entanglements with, with U.S. imperialism, their conscription into U.S. imperialism um, and what that means in terms of uh, sort of global solidarities for, for racial justice. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that there's a, I think, because there is a kind of institutionalization of Black studies and critical race and ethnic studies in the United States, but not in Europe, there is a way that uh, the United States sort of looms very large in global theorizations about race and racism, um, which, you know, we, we talked about this previously, Eleanor, help un inadvertently reproduces this narrative that, you know, the, the United States is sort of at the forefront of anti-racist mobilization and the rest of the world is catching up to or learning from the United States. Um, and one of the things that I, you know, I'm always trying to emphasize in my work is what we really have to learn from Black Europeans. And, you know, I think about Angela Davis's remark that, you know, the refugee movement is sort of the political movement of the, of the 21st century. Uh, I think one of the most um, powerful things that I've learned from working in Europe where, you know, working with uh, Black Italians who are also migrants or have, you know, intergenerational family experiences of border violence and who are post-colonial subjects in a very immediate way and are also racialized as Black, uh, the inextricability of struggles for racial justice, struggles against borders, and you know, struggles against um, colonialism, and all of the ways in which it is reproduced in like small and large ways in the present. And I think, although you know, you know, in the United States, um, you know, with, with you know, Black Lives Matter has you know definitely, I think, ha you know, uh, engages with questions of settler colonialism and and migrant rights. Uh, I've taken a lot of inspiration from you know groups like the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. But I think that in kind of popular discourse, there's a tendency to kind of disaggregate those struggles and map them onto distinct groups. And I think that the work in Italy is such a reminder um, that you know these struggles always have to be they always have to be interconnected. And so, you know, to your question about abolition, you know, I think about, um, you know, what does it mean to abolish citizenship? What does it mean to um, abolish borders? What does it mean to abolish uh, migrant detention? 
right? Because these are all sort of tentacularly connected, right? As, you know, different arms of the racial state, different arms of racial domination. Yeah, thanks. I think my question is really, can we talk about racial justice for migrants or in a context of migration without confronting the abolition of borders? And it sounds like that that's a fundamental part of the conversation in many ways. I would say it absolutely is. I think unless we are discussing border abolition, we can't begin to address histories of colonialism and the repair that that requires. We can't begin to, you know, I, I come back to, thank you for referencing Angela Davis, Camila, I come back to what how she defines radical, which is simply seizing things at the root. When I think about, um, I was doing some reading of Camila's work on the Black Mediterranean, and we can't talk about the Black Mediterranean without going back to the root of why are Africans leaving their home countries? Why are Africans being driven out of their home countries? They're being driven out by extractive colonialism and neocolonialism. We can't talk about, you know, dozens or hundreds of Africans drowning off the coast of Libya trying to reach Europe um, every day, every week without talking about Obama's invasion and destruction of Libya, the country that had the highest standard of living in Africa and had many of the social welfare structures that Americans are fighting for today. We can't talk about migration from the African continent without addressing climate justice. And so all of these things are so inextricably bound up with hundreds of years of colonial history and the entrenched systems of extraction that they have imposed. Um, I, I think most specifically of the African continent because that's my field of study, but obviously this includes many other regions of the world as well, South America, Asia. And in this particular moment, I think of the two great immediate crises that are facing humanity. Um, one is the climate crisis and the second is the pandemic, um, the COVID pandemic. And with both of those, to talk about justice, to talk about vaccine justice, to talk about climate justice requires that we abolish the notion of borders. We abolish the notion of nationalisms and hierarchies and the idea that countries should take care of themselves and their own populations and to hell with the rest of the world. I wanted just to close with this question about um, the role of creative practices in the work of racial justice and in the activism that you're both involved in. And I mean creative practices in a really broad sense. I'm thinking in, in some senses, I'm thinking about my own experience coming to um, study questions of migration in the Italian context, which um, was really opened up to me by the work of Italian writers of African descent um, who have, I think, been, been some of the key voices in bringing questions of cultural memory and, and really rewriting Italian history to acknowledge the colonial present also. And so I have that in mind when I pose the question of creative process. Could you talk a little bit about how this factors into your work? I mean, I think 
I, you know, similarly, you know, Eleanor, since we both work in Italy, uh, you know, the work of Black Italian writers and documentarians is really important for me. You know, again, because there isn't a sort of institutional infrastructure for, you know, Black studies uh, or, you know, again, you know, critical race studies in Europe. And so it, um, I mean, I think this is always the case, but again, particularly in Italy, it's a reminder that uh, the sites of knowledge production are are vast and varied and are not limited to the ivory tower of academia. And so, you know, I very quickly found that, you know, the some of the, the sharpest writing about, uh, you know, Black experiences and about, as you said, the colonial present were not coming from, from scholars, right? But they were coming from artists, um, artists and filmmakers and writers and and poets um that's where i was you know not only incredible kind of creative inspiration but just incredibly rich analysis um and then you know for me i've also you know i'm i'm a i'm a huge sci-fi nerd and so uh reading speculative fiction has always been a kind of huge part of my my intellectual and political practice you know um octavia butler uh, M.K. Jemison, um, Adrian Marie Brown, um, in part because of the way that I think speculative fiction renders slightly uh, unfamiliar our world, brings things into very sharp relief, and then gives us kind of tools to liberate our radical imaginations and and think about alternative forms of world building. So, um, you know, for me, um, as a, a very kind of boring academic writer, um, I, I draw so much inspiration from from reading fiction to think politically. Thank you for that, Camila. That's that's really great for me to hear because I have to admit that right now, as a, a poet and a writer, I'm really feeling. Um, you know, a, a sense of despair about the, the possibilities of the arts and creative work in the face of the, the crises that um, face us as humanity. I've spent most of my adult life being a ferocious and passionate advocate for the power of art as theory and art as knowledge production and the importance of art to enter people through the gut, to give people a way to genuinely integrate the unbearable truths of history, of human existence, of violence and power and what it means to be fully alive here on this planet. And right now, I'm at the point where I think centuries of art and great literature, great poetry, great music, great cinema, great theatre, have brought us to this precipice. Somehow they have failed. Somehow all the, the extraordinary history of human creative endeavour has failed to wake up humanity enough to shift us to the place where we can actually value our own lives and all life on this planet to not destroy ourselves. So I would say right now, for me, there is an enormous question mark about what can art do in this moment? What does art do in this moment? What is the, the work of creative endeavor in this particular moment when literally our existence as a species will depend on 
what we do in the next decade, whether we are able to dismantle these immense structures of oppressive power, capitalism, militarism, to allow us to continue to exist on this planet, or whether we are going to be defeated by them. So I think, and actually, as I listen to myself, I realize I'm also, you know, conceptualizing this epic struggle in artistic and creative terms. And I'm also reflecting back on, you know, what are the the models we have for this in, in literature, in art, in everything else. So it's this, um, I guess it's this being in this state of constant interrogation and argument with myself about what is the most urgent and effective work that we can be doing right now? What tools can we bring to bear on this enormous crisis that we face as a species? Thank you. I, I don't, I don't re have ready words to respond to it, but I really appreciate what, what you've both said about the power of imagination, the need to find ways to imagine differently, imagine outside the ways the world is is being defined for each of us, but also the struggle that that represents. The imagination, imagination itself maybe as a constant struggle and, and therefore also as part of the work. And now here's what we talk about when we talk about movement in its entirety. What we talk about when we talk about movement. How do you, the migrant, see us, the other? Asked the man last night after my talk in Venice. Guess the race of us. Guess the citizenship. I've said so often that I'm hoarse with it. Kenya is cities, towns, as well as wilderness. See us. Kenya is people, humanity, not just wildlife. See us. What we talk about when we talk about freedom is the right to be seen, to be visible and to be normative, visible while safe, visible while unquestioned. How do I, who you construct as migrant, see you who believe you belong here, you who think yourself stable in Venice, city of wedding cake palazzi balanced on fast rising waters? I said, what I see is that white migrants to Kenya call themselves expatriates. Before, they called themselves settlers. I said, what I see is the painful smallness of your window on the world, barely a slit in the wall, the scantest sliver of light. Enlarge your window, I said. Swing a sledgehammer through the brick. Make a jagged hole at least 200 years wider. See European migrants storm the borders of China, flood the country with opium. Swing the hammer again. Knock out another 200 years. Stand back from flying shards of masonry. Look to your east. Watch white migrants, locusts in pit helmets, swarm over Asia. See the famished corpses the vandalized temples in their wake. Look down. See the hungry hordes of Europe pile into rickety vessels, 
set sail south, see their scurvied bodies surge onto the African continent, hands outstretched, jaws in perpetual motion. Swing the hammer again. Wait for the dust to settle. You now have a panoramic view, 500 years in breadth. There are the boats, packed with ravenous European migrants, scrabbling the shores of North America. We won't speak of what follows. Citizen, you call yourself. Denizen of the Citadel. The fantasy of rooted nativity. The fiction that you live where you began. What I see when I look at you is ceaseless torrential migration of your material effluvium. Your mountains of disemboweled computers in Agboblashi, Ghana. Your tsunami of discarded plastics in China. Your bales of used clothing in Nairobi's Gikomba. Your canisters of nuclear waste on the beaches of Somalia. Your oil spills and pipeline flares across Ogoniland. Your raging psychopath man-children raping girls from Afghanistan to Okinawa. Your guns, your bombs, your tanks, your drones slicing the skies over Africa. What I see when I look at you are throngs of Italian child rapists on the streets of Malindi, tugging skinny 12-year-olds by the hand. You did ask. What we talk about when we talk about seeing is the size of the window, what direction it faces. What we talk about when we talk about migration is what moves and who is moved, by whose muscle, where does it come to rest? What we talk about when we talk about talking is who defines and delineates, where does their detritus go, who is safe and who is ultimately free. Thanks for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and with the hashtag Cornell Migrations. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migration's postdoctoral associate with the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies, and produced by Megan Dement. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the nation's sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is basically really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.